welcome to the Gondrepreneur.com podcast. My name is Shango Los, and I will be your host today. Dr. Dominic Corva is founder and executive director of the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. Dr. Corva is a political geographer and a public policy scholar. He was most recently a visiting assistant professor in public policy at Sarah Lawrence College and continues to be an affiliate researcher for the Humboldt Institute for Interdisciplinary Marijuana Research at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California. His work has been published in the International Journal of Drug Policy, Political Geography, the Annals of the Association of American Geographers, and ACME, a journal of radical geography. His dissertation research examined the political economy of international drug policy in the Western Hemisphere, and his postdoctoral research has focused on the political economy of cannabis agriculture in southern Humboldt County. In his current role as executive director at CASP, he studies cannabis policy at the state, national, and international levels. The center conducts original sociological and quantitative research and shares this research for the public good. The center also acts as an incubator of sorts for new nonprofit cannabis organizations and education efforts. Welcome, Dr. Corva. Thanks, Shango. So, Dr. Corva, in many states there are now cannabis magazines with journalists writing about cannabis and culture. Your organization conducts research at many levels and studies an array of important evolving issues. What do you see as the primary differences between what the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy does versus what a cannabis magazine reporter does? Well, Shango, I would say that the main difference is context, is that uh, uh, we bring a scholarly context to the information that we gather and disseminate. So that means a couple of things. One is sort of the big picture. It's one thing to know, you know, what, when's the first million-dollar sales day and what that really means sort of in a, in a bigger picture. Uh, we are interested in uh, learning about things that are not yet news is another uh, good uh, distinction, is that uh, we're not driven by the news cycle, but in some ways we drive the news cycle by creating information that people are able to see what's going on. The other thing, of course, is we're embedded in cannabis policy and markets, uh, and journalists often are um, uh, moonlighting. Uh, they ask a lot of great questions, they get a lot of answers, they report on it, they move on. Uh, this is, of course, what we're, we're, we're doing for the long haul. So our information has to matter for the long haul, not just for the short-term uh, media cycle. When you when you talk about your your developing the the information yourself, what is it that the center does to generate this content? I mean, what what exactly are you doing on a day to day basis? So uh, we're an epicentral information node, which means that uh, you know I talk to people all the time uh, through um, a number of different ways. Uh, some are simple, like call them up and ask them what's going on. Some of their ongoing relationships in which I regularly get together to exchange information about what's going on in the processing market, for example, or what's going on with inventory. And I put everybody's you know, information they feed me together and I synthesize it. Right? So it's a lot of primary data that is based upon uh, you know, an ethnographic approach where I, I talk to people you know, quite often on a structural basis for each field of interest that is appropriate for cannabis markets and policy. Uh, and also... Uh, we, of course, uh, gather and synthesize primary data that is quantitative in nature. So, for instance, the information that's publicly available and also information we request from the Liquor Control Board, uh, it comes in you know, Excel spreadsheets. Well, we have to actually you know, visualize that data and explain 
you know, what it means to, to the public. So we take raw data and we process it for, so that people can understand what's going on. And this applies also to, you know, information I get from my contacts uh, in California and Oregon. Uh, I participate in civil society is the other way I get information. So the Oregon Sun Growers Guild, for example, had me in for their inaugural talk to them. Once Oregon passed this measure, the Sun Growers in Oregon were like, well, you know, what do we have to look out for? And uh, so they had me come in and give a talk about that. And they also consult with me, have been consulting with me since then uh, to get feedback on steps to take and so forth. Uh, I'm also participating in Washington State in a number of civil society initiatives that are about establishing common ground. So Washington Cannabis Commission is an example. There's an umbrella organization that doesn't try to get everybody on the same agenda, but tries to get the parts of everybody's agendas that are like in common to be working together. Uh, so obviously the people that I meet uh, in participating in those sessions all have individual industry interests, but they're working out like what's different about them and what are their commonalities, what's their common ground. And that's definitely a good role for a nonprofit information center to be playing. You know, as, as more states move towards normalization and you're able to share the, the successes and failures of, of Washington and Colorado and the other places that you've studied, it almost sounds like that the newer states who are having you come in to speak, you're kind of distributing uh, best practices in a lot of ways. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, like I'm not inventing them, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm hearing about them, hearing people debate them, watching what comes out of those debates, seeing how they're resolved and then how they're corrected later. So in a way, you know, the, the learning experience, the learning curve in Washington State is, you know, uh, an experiment that people can learn from, you know, now. It's, it's process instead of just its results. Right? So the results, you know, you can see in the news, they get reported on. But the process, how we get there that's the most important information for people in other states because that's what they've got to go through first. Mm -hmm. uh, they can see outcomes. They can see outcomes they might want or not want, uh, but they have to understand what the process was in order to avoid or, or replicate you know, uh, uh, outcomes. Are you seeing that um, a lot of the new states that are moving towards normalization are, are reaching out and they're looking for you know, mistakes and best practices from Washington, or do you find that each state is more wanting to reinvent the wheel itself? The former, the former for sure. Uh, but when they're learning from mistakes, that means they do have to reinvent the wheel uh, in, in, in some ways. Um, the tax policy that we followed in Washington state is not one other people want to follow. So what do they do? We don't really have a model for that yet. Uh, you know, Oregon's uh, rules are still being made, but the initiative passed with the idea that uh, you know cannabis would be taxed at the producer level at $35 an ounce. Uh, California um, is taking a proactive approach. Their policymakers are uh, ahead of time getting to know what the production system is like inside California before they figure out what the tax you know situation should be, as opposed to Washington, where the initiative was written. You know the production landscape was total mystery. Nobody understood that, uh, but they made policy anyway, uh, which is why we've had the problems. Uh, and California, of course, there's so much more at stake because it's the national you know, provider, uh, essentially, of cannabis, uh, the domestic producer. Uh, so they really have to get it right from the get-go. And I'm finding you know, that those people are reaching out to learn from and, and discuss uh, with uh, potential experts you know, how, how to move forward. 
I brought uh, Todd Arkley, uh, a very uh, respected CPA in Washington State, down to California to talk to the California Board of Equalization so that an accountant could talk to them, not just a policy guy like me, mm-hmm. right? Like someone, I'm not an accountant, so like there's a limit to how much I can tell them about what they could do. What I could tell them was, you know, our mistakes, and then Todd could say, here are the options. Here's the options we're considering now in Washington. Here, you know, like uh, talk to the other tax people in, in California to see how those might work with their particular system and rules. It sounds like what CASP is doing is to connect people and move the intellectual capital around between these different locations to benefit smart cannabis reform. Absolutely, you know, it's uh, it's 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 about essentially, you know, networking together uh, all these folks who are, you know, trying in principle to do the same thing, but uh, not sure really, you know, uh, how to go about it. So the thing is, is that I don't necessarily tell them what the right thing is to do. I link them up with the people who have, you know, the deep specialized knowledge that are otherwise they wouldn't they couldn't find. Uh, essentially, like they they could have dug for a bit and found Todd, for example, but there was a shortcut, me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm organizing a flow of information that will inform policymaking because policy that succeeds is based on reality, and if the reality is not understood, then we're going to get bad policy. Uh, so yeah, uh, so we're a uh, we're networking together good information uh, in a way that allows, creates space for good policy to be made uh, rather than claiming like the authority, this is what's happened and this is what should happen, therefore you do this. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. This is a field that's brand new. It's opening up. And uh, one thing I think that is unique about what we provide is humility with respect to the possible information. I'm deep into it enough to know that like we're scratching the surface and that uh, it's going to take a lot of different heads together to really define that surface and no one person should be going around claiming the authority to, to, that, that they know it all. Uh, so we have a lot of humility with respect to the information that, that we have and uh, uh, that means creating space for uh, collective understanding to be developed. It's much more powerful than a, than a private approach. Um, I know from following your your, your um your blog that that you know you're you're in Colorado and you're back in Washington and then you're Humboldt and then you're in Europe uh, on some panel somewhere. Well, you know here in the United States, Humboldt County is pretty much the birthplace of American cannabis. And as normalization continues, the heritage growers in the Emerald Triangle seem to be like they could be at risk of being squeezed out by corporate growers in California. So in the time that you you're going back and forth to move this intellectual capital back and forth. How do you see this playing out? Like, what do you think the future holds for California's heritage growers? Well, it's a, it's a lot more promising uh, because of what's happened in the last year and a half in California in terms of organizing there. The growers have historically been separate from reform efforts. That is, they're not participating in it, and when they do, it's really has historically been out of sort of fear and reaction. It's like, this could kill my business therefore I don't want it. In the last year and a half, uh, folks have gained a, you know, uh, a collective understanding that by participating in the process, they can secure a future for themselves. Standing apart from it or, or being against it is not going to help them. And uh, this has been uh, you know, especially evident in uh, California Cannabis Voice and new efforts by the Emerald Growers Association, which has totally rebooted itself. Uh, from being a defensive, you know, trade association, 
to a proactive in Sacramento, uh, you know, talking to policymakers about why, uh, you know, the producers should be at the table when you make your rules and make your policy about cannabis liberalization. Uh, and, and they're able to make those arguments not just out of self-interest, but to frame them as being in the general interest because you have a production system already. If you make a different production system, what you're creating is a potential for a lot of conflict. Uh, and actually it makes your life a, lo a lot harder because you have to reinvent the whole new production system. Look at Washington State. You know, like our production system is a new one. It didn't really like build bridges from the old one, so it's a lot harder to get off the ground. Uh, from day one, if you have people who are experienced and already have practices and are adapting them to a more professional landscape, then you have a more efficient system that works in terms of production than one that goes through these you know, uh, waves of dysfunction where you've got too few retailers for too much product in one season and the, the previous season, uh, you know, the opposite problem, not enough supply, too many retailers, mm -hmm. and it changes overnight. Well, that shouldn't have been a surprise to anybody who understands agriculture in general, uh, but certainly cannabis agriculture where, you know, seasonality is understood, inventory is understood, uh, you know, those, those don't have to be reinvented in a new system. They have to be adapted to a new system so it's a robust one that's not actually in competition with the old producers. That It's not in competition because the old producers are there and they're part of that system and they're helping create something that is positive for the state in general, society in general, rather than, uh, you know, antagonizing it as the black market or the medical market or whatever else. Do you find that any of the states are actually effectively doing this so far? I mean, I know... We're recording this in Washington State, which I'm most familiar with, and and here, uh, pretty much if you had cannabis experience, you are actually on the outside of cannabis legalization, um, and and hopefully folks are learning from our mistakes in that. Absolutely. Is is anybody doing it the right way yet? Well, I think Oregon is definitely a, a really good example here so far. Again, like we'll see what happens. They're still in the middle of the process, but uh, the growers' organizations knew ahead of time that they needed to be a part of that process. They needed to have that input in there. And, you know, they, so they hired a lobbyist, you know, before the, you know, the rulemaking committee even started. The lobbyist has been in the room, Jonathan Manton, and other, other organizations in, in, in Oregon uh, from sort of the heritage tradition. Uh, so they're able to, uh, you know, be informed as to, you know, possible you know, directions that could hurt them and to actively, you know, uh, attempt to co-opt those efforts. Uh, they're in the room, basically. They're helping make the rules. And I think it's going to uh, uh, really uh, help Oregon's program be, you know, strong and endogenous. Uh, Oregon has some, you know, unique problems to, you know, Washington or California. But in general, uh, I'm on an Oregon listserv. DPFOR, right, uh, which is uh, the listserv about everything going on with legalization in Oregon, and every major organization is on that listserv. And since I got on it, uh, I have a whole you know column that is labeled forums in my Gmail account, and it is 99% DPFOR posts, and I get hundreds of them every day. People are really involved in paying attention. Uh, and that means the process, even though it looks messy if you look at my email list, it means it's democratic. It means things are being work, worked out now rather than needing to be reacted to later. 
And I think that that, that shows great promise for, for how organs can work out. It sounds like that not only the citizenry are activated and participating, but there's a higher chance that the Oregon legislators are actually having their ears open. You know, in, in Washington, we hired outside consultants, and it all kind of happened behind a, a curtain, and then it was just kind of dropped on everybody. Whereas the the process you're describing in Oregon as democratic, it sounds like it's way more inclusive. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I mean, you know, the, the defining feature of Botech was that it was a group of out, outsiders. Uh, you know, the climbing group was, uh, you know, a pro group, and it had a lot of, you know, uh, national names on it and, and, and think tank names and so forth. But almost none of them had any knowledge whatsoever of actual Washington existing markets. And so, you know, the information they were able to provide the LCB was abstract. It wasn't connected to, like, you know, the realities and distinctiveness of, of Washington State. So that really is, a, I, I think, a huge deal, is that Oregon didn't put out a national call for a consultant to come help them design their system. They recognized that they had people who knew what they were doing already in Oregon, and those are the people they needed to listen to to design the system. Do you see any positive feedback coming back uh, to Washington from this process? Specifically, you know, we, we kind of botched it up to begin with, and then... Um, Oregon is watching what our lessons were and are doing it in a more uh, inclusive way. Do you see like a second wave in Washington opening up, or do you think that now that we've kind of made this bed and are a bit mired, we're kind of stuck in it still? Oh, we're stuck in it. We're definitely stuck in it. Um, And we're getting worse in some respects because, you know, two years of struggling has meant that there are vested I-502 interests now who were not part of the old landscape, who have a lot of money, and they are calling the shots in the legislature. So uh, the problem is we're developing sort of an elite cadre of cannabis professionals whose interest is in continuing to cut off the old guard and, uh, and making sure that they're not competition. So, uh, you know, 5052 is a good example of that, uh, there are elements of it that are helpful and will bring in some of the old guard, and in particular, uh, the more professional dispensaries will be given a chance to participate in the system with medical endorsements. Uh, we don't know, you know, who's qualified to determine, you know, whether they, you know, someone should be endorsed medically or not. Uh, the actual, you know, uh, ability to do so outstrips the mandate to do it. Uh, but there's time to work on it and. Uh, the best thing is that, you know, managed to avoid the creation of new felonies. Uh, and as long as we're not moving backwards on the criminal justice side of it, then, you know, we're still, I think, uh, uh, moving a little bit in the right direction. So, you know, I think that the forecast for Washington is that we're, the rules are being set by, you know, people who weren't here two years ago. And how do we work with that? And that's the main challenge. Yeah. There are so many misconceptions in cannabis policy right now. I mean, not only from state to state, but even people who are involved and are cannabis enthusiasts and activists, they themselves are holding misconceptions either based on things that they were told or always assumed or, or, or their vision of the future. So at the national level, though, what do you think are some of the most common miscommunications? Mis- mis- <laughs> All right, let's try this again. There are so many misconceptions in cannabis policy right now. 
Um, at the national level, what do you think are some of the most common misconceptions held by cannabis enthusiasts and supporters? Yeah, well, the, uh, the biggest misconception is that legalization means that uh, everyone is more free to engage in cannabis commerce, uh, when in fact legalization clearly means that new lines are being drawn that uh, actually have a potentially negative benefit uh, or a negative outcome for uh, folks who've been, for instance, you know, providing patients with low or no-cost medicine, for example. They're, they're not more free to do that under legalization as we've, we've made it in Washington State. They're less free to do it. So we celebrate legalization as though that means something just in general that is just all positive. Uh, it is all positive for the criminal justice side of it. That's important that they understand that part is true, uh, but their ability to have sustainable livelihoods in cannabis is potentially eradicated uh, unless they reinvent themselves, you know, in the formal market as consultants, or if they, uh, you know, get with the right investors uh, and are able to be part of uh, the new landscape. Mm-hmm. The center for the study of cannabis and social policy recently obtained a large dump of raw data from the Washington State Liquor Control Board that everybody's been talking about. And the center has led the way in making sense of this kind of obtuse dump of information. How's the center going about it? And what are some of the very first insights that have come from the early study of that data dump? Yeah. So uh, we have established a, uh, a working group of data professionals uh, that we're calling the Liquor Control Board Data Dump Working Group, uh, and we have a, you know a Trello account uh, with you know assignments and uh, ways to, to divide uh, divide up uh, uh, our efforts to process this data. Now, it's a raw data dump from BioTrack. Uh, it is not organized in a fashion that allows you to make you know easy sense of it. You have to know what to export, you know, into an Excel file in order to make it, you know, uh, processable, uh, and then to be able to, you know, visualize it and tell a story about it. So, you know, uh, it's a it's a really positive development because it means that the Liquor Control Board actually is offering us greater access to information than they ever did before. But we need expertise, professional expertise, to to make that happen, and that's why we have the working group. Um, now it's 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 negative in the sense that you know it's just not clear, and also we have to learn you know Biotrax API, we have to learn you know their software. We need you know a level of professional attention to this that you know we didn't need before. Uh, but that's a challenge that we're uh, happy to actually rise to because of the wide array of different stakeholders, uh, volunteer and other and otherwise that want to make sense of this data dump, and they can't do it by themselves. Uh, so in addition to obviously me reaching out to certain data professionals, Dr. Jim McRae is a good example, um, we've had people reach out to us because they've gotten that data dump too. It was a public information request type thing. And even the folks who are you know, providing subscriptions for you know the way they process the data are struggling with it. So they're all realizing that actually this is a collective effort. And at the, at the very base, we need to establish a system for, you know, uh, being able to access it. And that, because uh, until we do that, like, nobody can make any sense of it. 
and so it's a really interesting public-private partnership, I think, that's developing. What kind of data points are in there? Because oh, you know, data point, you know, data can be a lot of things. All of them. This is the seed to sale tracking system dump. I mean, it's it's not all of them. I, I do know that. That's one thing that has been determined from our, our professionals that there are data quality problems uh, that are endemic. Um, so, for instance, you know, um, fields that you know assert like a greater than one hundred percent, you know. THC level is clearly like you know that's a, that's a data quality problem. Fields that are empty, fields that have been misentered. So like what we're seeing here is the raw data that gets input by the producers, processors, and retailers, and there's a lot of human error on that side. Uh, there are uh, you know beyond that you know issues in the process of creating the information that maybe they entered correctly, but the process like that they there maybe there was a mistake at the lab, and like that gets entered. Uh, so, you know, uh, we've determined that uh, the biotrack system may be a little, little difficult uh, in that regard. Uh, it's only as reliable as the data that's entered into it, and people are still learning how to do that. It's still, you know, uh, that moment when, you know, you open up the latest version of Microsoft Office, and you have learned that, like, oh, sh I've got to actually relearn how to do Microsoft Word. The buttons are all in the wrong places. You know, uh, that, uh, you know, where's that easy, like, function? It's somewhere in there. you got to find it. Uh, so, you know, this is not necessarily the fault of, say, Biotrack per se. We don't want to be adversarial about that. But it is a new system, and there are thousands of people with no expertise in, like, data entry, entering data. <laughs> so, this, you know, there are potential data quality issues, basically, that first we want to identify what data is good. Uh, and, you know, there are systematic ways to do that that generally involve identifying outliers and, and, and getting rid of them, basically, so that the, the data is there we're confident in. The outliers, you know, the, the problem is drawing that gray line between what's an outlier and what's not, really. Uh, and so, you know, we're very early on that. But in terms of the, the data that's available, you know, uh, once we get the, you know, code broken, essentially, we will be able to say, you know, what labs have been testing THC at what percentage. Uh, we will probably be finding outliers for some labs um, that may be due to their uh, the way they do it. Um, for instance, there the American Herbal Pharmacopeia has standards that people are supposed to follow, but the LCB doesn't have an auditing system for making sure they're following it. So people are requiring far less in terms of their grams of sampling. People are applying a different methodology, which the, the, the key one, I would say, is that uh, your THC levels are always a combination of your actually your THC and your THCA numbers. And your THC numbers are always really low in plants because you have to decarboxylate the THCA and make it turn into THC. That process of decarboxylation isn't 100% conversion. And so the standard is to apply a 0.8 multiplied by 0.8, of the THCA should become THC, add that to your THC, and that should be your total THC. Well, some labs aren't doing that. They're not multiplying by 0.8, they're just adding THCA to THC, and that's your THC levels. Which is giving us, in the legal system, uh, clearly much higher THC numbers than the testing that was going on in the medical system. Um, you know, the information, when we visualize that, when we show the public and policymakers that like this is a problem, they can act on it. Uh, and again, not to identify bad actors or criminal actors, 
but people who are figuring out you know how to do this you know like uh, we can't assume uh, expertise you know like uh, I've been saying for a while uh, for 502 legal cannabis you know if you had a day in it you know you are in the 1% in terms of expertise level uh, in the population uh, and that 1% includes people who've been there from day one <laughs> so you know, you're at the tail end of that, but you're still more expert than everybody else. But but the folks who've been there from day one are still also just figuring this out. There's just so much room for for error that it's important for you know uh, for us to be able to look at the big picture in there and kind of determine well where are things kind of kind of going going weird. Uh, so we should be able to get the inventory story, uh, which has been a difficult monkey to track down, uh, which would help us understand, uh, for example. You know what needs to be sold and what's being produced right now, and compare that with what's going through the, the the velocity of it going through the system out the retail doors. Are we building industry inventory or is it shrinking? And the dynamics of that are very strange because we have to understand that obviously indoor production is coming online strongly right now, but then we're going to have a huge outdoor production in the fall. And yet you add those together, and like, what are we looking at in terms of prices when you have this much oversupply? and a very limited retail landscape. Um, we're not opening up retail stores at a rate that, that we're increasing production. That's the short story. Uh, but the, the data dump will tell us exactly, you know, uh, what are the dimensions of that and what people maybe should be thinking about in terms of maybe we need to open up, you know, twice as many retail stores. Uh, and that's policymakers are considering exactly that right now. But until they actually have that information in front of them, they're not going to know how dire the situation potentially is. Last week, your organization released an infographic with just the very, very beginnings of, of making sense of this data. And uh, I think it was mostly on, on inventory. Um, but, but what is anything from that data that you found surprising yeah. or, or against what everyone's assumptions were that there was going to be in there? Yeah. Well, uh, there was a lot of panic about the fall harvest. Uh, and overproduction uh, that crashed prices to a degree that was very problematic for all these producers. We're still dealing with a three-tiered tax system uh, and uh, are still attempting to, you know, um, recapitalize what they lost in the first, like, year and a half of trying to actually open up. Uh, there was huge panic. There were numbers that, that were thrown out there uh, irresponsibly. Uh, saying there was you know 30,000 pounds of uh, inventory uh, that were based on kind of a uh, just nothing in particular other than like we know that you know this was the canopy and we know how many pounds were produced up through December 7th because that was that cutoff point for the LCB keeping track of it basically and so you know people were panicking like this is a huge problem you know you know the LCB system's going to crash because everybody's going to go out of business where in fact, you know, you know, my my initial response to that was, wait a second, you know, like of the, what was harvested, you know, the LCB standard is, you know, one one to one, you know, buds to raw material, uh, in terms of what the plant produces. Uh, so first of all, cut your thirty thousand pound like estimate in half right away to fifteen thousand pounds, which is you know still a lot but manageable. Um, and then, actually, we, uh, we need to actually go back and check that one-to-one -one ratio again. 
So this is a lymphograph, which is produced by the LCB, uh, and is supposed to be a weekly production, but we haven't gotten any further iterations, even though we've, we've put forth more information requests. Uh, what it showed was approximately, you know, um, uh, in terms of usable bud flower, basically, to uh, go into the system, there were a, a total of about 15,000 pounds uh, that was produced between July and December, as opposed to a total of about 25,000 pounds, which we were kind of thinking might have been the case. And also, its ratio to the raw material was much more like one to three. One pound of usable buds to three pounds of raw material. Uh, which means that your inventory of buds is not nearly, you know, the problem that, that folks are saying. And you can see that in, in February, if you look at the trajectory, essentially, of price, prices uh, stabilizing, it started stabilizing February, which is not consistent with a massive glut. Like, there was a glut that was clearing. That's the story that that was telling me. And that infographic showed, you know, how that, that seemed to be the case. Uh, one, we were off on the raw material to bud, usable bud production you know, uh, ratio, uh, and uh, and two that it was that it that it was clearing. Um, it also the surprising thing is I think we're up to about 700 pounds a month of indoor production, uh, which was I think a uh, um, a little bit more than I thought we were at, uh, and certainly we're showing you know uh, more every month in, in a way that is again not consistent with our, our retail stores opening up. Outside of what the uh, WSLCB is reporting through their infographic, um, what has your team at the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy started to pull out of the data that you might find surprising? Is it, is it too early for you to speak on the data, or, or are, is there anything that you've seen right off the bat you're like, wow, this is interesting? It's a bit early, to be honest. Um, you know, the, the basic stuff in the infographic... Uh, is is what we've been able to kind of like pull so far, and that's kind of just you know uh, reinventing their process to get at the infographic. So that's not super surprising. Uh, the sales data is not surprising because the sales data is the most reliable data, uh, and that's the most accessible data from from the uh, uh, from the data dump. I think that uh, um, the evolution of the processing industry, the very beginning sort of peek into that is most interesting to me and what what should be wasn't a surprise to me but maybe a surprise to the public is that you know CO2 oil wax shatter like those products are in the 502 market they're a little more expensive than they ought to be uh, but uh, they're coming online and, and to me that's the that's the inventory that you need to look on for the profitability for producers and processors is that there's so much growth potential, and uh, you know, for in particular the concentrate production, uh, and that will take care of inventory in ways that you know selling buds will not. Mm-hmm. So whether that means you know raw material or or bee buds or buds you weren't able to sell, you know, because they weren't they were inferior in terms of their bag appeal, like that goes into a processing system, and that processing capacity is starting to develop. They got plenty to work with, and those prices should be coming down. Let's change our focus from the state and national level to the international level. Um, This week, uh, CASP and a consortium of over 100 human rights and drug policy organizations released an open letter calling on the UN to respect changing drug policies within member countries like ours and to prioritize human rights over punitive law enforcement and its approach to drugs laws. 
Will you please tell us about the disconnect between the evolution of drug policy of UN member nations and the difficulties that the UN body is having adapting to these changes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, so the UN drug control system was, you know, initially really structured by and disciplined by, you know, the U.S. State Department uh, in conjunction with a few key allies that maybe you wouldn't expect. Countries like Italy, uh, Japan, uh, even some, uh, you know, um, Scandinavian countries, uh, all of whom, you know, wanted to place, you know, key diplomats into key positions. And so there's the politics of the UN itself, which has a lot of different bureaucracies, and every country is vying to put their people in positions of authority. So we have, you know, a number of different UN drug control bodies within the UN who are all countries just sort of competing for getting to say something, (laughs) Uh, a role. Uh, And the U.S. has played a smaller and smaller role in, like, what that looks like. But other countries have adapted or adopted the early U.S. sort of militant approach to drug prohibition in ways that are, you know, maybe might be surprising to some people. I think that it's fair to say that while the U.S. is the author of, you know, the global drug war, other states have found it very, very useful as well. And they've learned how to find it useful in ways that the U.S. maybe never anticipated. And certainly, you know, uh, you know China, for example. Uh, uh, there are a number of other countries that are moving to get tougher on drugs and, and move more towards the old U.S. approach on their own. And they're in the U.N. in key positions of authority. Uh, so they push back against uh, drug policy reform uh, and in, in ways that, like, you know, we wouldn't have expected 20 years ago, you know. Um, uh, it, it hasn't gotten more democratic, it's gotten more bureaucratic, which means it's very difficult to get things done. Uh, you know, one element of the UN, you know, drug control policy, maybe the health or, you know, the, the health professional bureaucracy is more interested in harm reduction, but UNODC, drugs of crime, those are law enforcement professionals, and they don't want the drug war to go away at all. Uh, so, uh, but at the same time, of course, there's much more vocal opposition to the old paradigm now. And that our, our letter really represents a consortium of, uh, of really accomplished and long-standing organizations that have worked for this for a very long time. Uh, and they do have a voice in, uh, in particular, you know, the, the health side of it. Uh, but they don't have much of a voice uh, necessarily when it comes to the sort of law and order side of it. It sounds like there's a lot of um, entrenched ideology and elites that are benefiting from the old system to, to such a degree that it, it, it may seem like the letter is more symbolic than having a lot of you know, true effect. What do you think that it's going to t- take to change the policy at the UN level after the United States has been such a leader in sculpting the drug war to suddenly you know, kind of change our minds and yeah. decide to go the other way to, to bring the entrenched elites along with us? Well... Fragmentation, basically. Uh, the U.S., what it was good at was really like constructing coalitions that all got behind what they said. And they would do it through a combination of carrot and stick. Uh, it wasn't us forcing everybody all the time. Often it was us providing benefits to folks to get behind. Uh, with the sort of like, the U.S. is stepped back from that role as other countries have, you know, become more militant, Russia, China, and so forth. But it's a fragmented situation. 
And you have your Latin American countries in particular that really want to break away from this. And uh, certainly I think the, uh, we're the, the biggest victims of the, uh, you know, uh, the global drug war that uh, the U.S. built through the U.N. Uh, through how the 1961 treaty itself uh, evolved and, and uh, what signatories had to do and when they would be held accountable for breaking it. You know, Bolivia lost funding uh, because they objected to uh, you know, the, the COCA provision in the, in the 1961 treaty. So the 1961 treaty is still the foundation and bedrock upon which drug control policy is made worldwide. And nominally, everyone has to like, do their duty as signatory. But it's fragmented. Like people are signed on, but increasingly not really even you know honoring the letter of the law. And the U.S. would be first in line in terms of my description of countries that are doing that, because nowhere else in the world have we legalized cannabis. I mean, there's Uruguay. It's it's, it's a weird situation, but like we're like the biggest breakers of the U.N. Drug Control Treaty right fucking now. Sorry, <laughs> right now. And, like, that is powerful because other countries feel free to do it without repercussion because if the U.S. tries to crack down on them or, or cut off aid, they can say, what about Washington, Colorado, Alaska, Washington, D.C., Oregon, California? You know, you really can't hold us uh, to be the lawbreakers here. Uh, so symbolically, like, it is fragmenting, and in that way... Uh, the consensus around it is breaking, and that can go very positive directions in some places. In Spain, it's going in positive. Portugal, it's going in positive direction. Uruguay, it's going in positive direction. In certain parts of Latin America, it's going in a positive direction, but it can get really nasty as well. So, Dr. Corva, it sounds like your organization is uh, producing important research at the local, state, national, and participating with things at the international level, and I'm sure that many of our um, audience are going to be interested to following up more. Where can folks find out more about CASP? www.cannabisandsocialpolicy.org is our website and my contact information, email and phone number are on that. People are free to contact me anytime. Thank you, Dr. Corva, for joining me today. Dr. Dominic Corva is Executive Director of the Center for the Study of Cannabis and Social Policy. I am Shango Lopes, founder of the Vashon Island Marijuana Entrepreneurs Alliance. Thank you for listening to Gontrepreneur.com.